Hello and welcome to Three Worlds Podcast Series 2, Episode 6. Today I thought it would be really nice and timely, perhaps, as I've not really done it before, to talk about ritual objects in more depth. And thinking about it, I thought perhaps the best way of doing that was actually to talk about some of the objects that I use. Now, I work in really three traditions, and the traditions are Native American plains culture medicine traditions, the more shamanic end of Tibetan Buddhism, and the shamanism of uh, sort of southern Siberia around Mongolia, but not absolutely exclusive to Mongolia. I had Huge trouble integrating these three things. I struggled with it for years and years and years because they all felt in many ways kind of all different. And there is a commonality between them all, but they also felt very different. And it was my spirits that that helped me do that. They showed me a plait of three colours, a cord, plaited, three, you know, how you make a plait with three uh, bands or three ribbons or whatever. Um, they showed me a plait of three colours and that solved it for me. There was a plait of red, which is the Native American traditions, and a plait of sort of amber yellow, which was the Tibetan traditions, and a plait of sky blue, which was the Mongolian traditions. So those three coloured cords were plaited all together and sort of, in a way, the plait became a rope of those three traditions. And that was about 15 years ago, or perhaps even longer. And since then, I just haven't had a problem integrating them, because for me, they're all distinct colours, but they all weave together. So I'm suggesting that because I know some of you also work with different traditions, and you might find it a useful metaphor, a useful analogy. Is that the word? I think it is. Oh, words, there's so many. I get so confused. Bear of little brain. Oh, dear. So the Native American traditions were the first traditions that I came into contact with. Um, I st well, I started making ritual objects when I was back in my teenage years, and I was doing it kind of instinctively. Um, they weren't coming from any other tradition other than my own intuition and my own kind of innate knowing about things. But the first actual kind of living tradition, as it were, that I came in contact with was in my late 20s when I became involved in Native American traditions and received a whole load of medicine teachings. Now, Native American objects, they at the time, they fascinated me greatly, and I became somebody that did a lot of craft work. I started making drums, I started doing beadwork, I started making bundles, I worked making feather fans for people, and rattles out of raw hides and gourd, and all sorts of bits and pieces like that. Very much drawn to uh, Native American plains culture, uh, tribal groups like the Lakota, Arapaho, Cheyenne, Crow, they were the main four that I was drawn to. Um, and with that, there came the whole sort of idea of medicine bundles. And they were the first medicine objects that I really started to learn about, uh, or, or the first sort of magical medicine objects, I guess one could say. Now, a bundle is a collection of ritual objects, all of which have a symbolic meaning and a sort of spirit power. And they are assembled 
It's a bit like making a chemical equation. You pour a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of something else into the flask and hope by stirring it that it doesn't explode in your face. Um, bundles are like that. You mix all these different components together with the intent for what it is that you're actually making it for. And that combines with the inherent intent of each of the constituent materials. And then these things are put into either a bag generally or perhaps wrapped up in cloth or wrapped up in a piece of rawhide. There's different ways of doing it. But bundles are a very traditional part of this particular culture of, you know, Plains culture from, from North America. But they also, in essence, are the energetic way that traditional uh, ritual objects are made in many cultures across the world. Um, in Tibet, for instance, you have something called a gao. A gao is a shrine box. They're generally made of metal. They're often patterned, repousse metalwork, so you get kind of patterns hammered into them. And they often have a little piece of uh, what nowadays tends to be glass, but in the past used to often be rock crystal in the front, like a window. And in there, various magical objects which are blessed and empowered are placed. And in effect, that is exactly the same as a Native American bundle, except that it's in a metal container rather than a, a piece of buckskin that's been turned into a bag. So all of the objects in a medicine bundle have, as I said, their in own innate medicine quality. For instance, tobacco as a herb might be put in, and tobacco is said to attract spirits. So tobacco would be added to the bundle for the act of empowerment. Uh, coral and turquoise might be put into it, and they have their own in innate qualities too. Coral is female, and it is of the earth, and um, turquoise is male and it is of the sky and so when you combine those things you are bringing in the elements of earth and sky and when they're put in together it becomes the sacred marriage between these two powers of the universe which are a bit like yin and yang which means that it's like adding the positive and negative of a battery terminal together and it creates the juice inside of the bundle so there's lots of different things that are used. It might be a little part of an animal like a bear claw or a tiny scrap of eagle feather or whole different things. And, and so a bundle would be made for a particular intent and you would sort of grab out th these sort of stock ingredients, which, as I say, all have their own particular medicine intent anyway, and assemble it. And then it would have ceremonies done with it to bless and awaken it. And then it would be an alive, powerful, magical bundle that not only reminded you of the intent that you created it for, but would also be a kind of um, like a radio receiver, really, for this intent to manifest and radiate out into the world. So bundles were the very first thing that I learned. And I learned about protection bundles and dreaming bundles and different empowerment bundles and the making of personal medicine bundles. A medicine bundle is a bundle that represents the inner essence of you. So it contains things that are symbolic of your medicine, your medicine being the qualities that you 
kind of bring out into the world and everybody's medicine is slightly different. So it's about finding out who you are, truly who you are, and then making a bundle that reflects this and amplifies it. It's like a feedback loop. Um, sorry for those of you that are not musical. Uh, feedback loop is when uh, a guitar or similar instrument um, starts to make a noise and then the speaker hears it and bounces the noise back and that makes the guitar string vibrate even more and it kind of gets more and more and more and more and more and you get that awful howl. That's a feedback loop. It's a loop. And a medicine bundle acts like a loop. It feeds back the power into the universe, which then kind of reinforces the power in the, in the bundle. And then that brings in more power from the universe. And yeah, you know what I'm saying. I'm not explaining that at all well. But yeah, you've all got telepathy. You know exactly what I'm trying to convey. Just ignore the words. Just tune into me. You'll get there. So learning about medicine bundles was hugely important for me, I think, because it kind of gave me the foundation for all of my understanding about other ritual objects. And bundles, like I said, are used all over the world. They have different physical forms, like the Tibetan Gao that I mentioned, but they occur in all cultures um, because it's the way humans think and it's the way humans are. They attribute or they understand, I'm not sure if they attribute or if it's the actual way that the objects are, but they attribute powers to certain materials, certain physical objects, and therefore you can kind of make a sentence out of all of these, or a string of beads if you want to think of it in that way. You have different words or different beads, you put them in a string, and they make something. With words, they make a sentence. I think it's quite good to think of them as words, you have all these different words which are each of the different magical materials and you put them together in a sentence to say something. So I had quite a an in-depth kind of introduction to all of this which went on for many years because I worked with Native American teachers for about the first 10 years or more, probably nearly 15, of the uh, my kind of apprenticeship in inverted commas wasn't a formal apprenticeship but you know what I'm saying my kind of working with the spirits so with those Native American teachings I was then able to go on and look at other things so um, I think the Tibetan stuff and the Mongolian stuff kind of happened concurrently for me but I'm going to start by talking about the Tibetan things I think Tibetan objects well there's a difference between those and Native American in that Native American tends to be made from natural materials because that's the materials that Native American cultures had, at least historically. I mean, even glass beads were bought as trade items by the white settlers and invaders. But Tibetan objects, well, Tibet has got a long history of metalwork, and so metal is used very much in Tibetan objects. Uh, for instance, you will have the ritual uh, scepters, the small dorges, uh, which are held in the right hand, and they are representing thunderbolts. And in the left hand, you will have the bell, uh, both of which are made of metal, and also both of which 
represent that sacred marriage of male and female again. That is, again is universal. Uh, very often also with the left hand being female and the right hand being male, the left hand being passive, the right hand being active. Uh, and in Tibetan Buddhism, the left hand being wisdom and the right hand being compassion because um, compassion is seen as an active thing. And the feminine is seen as wise. It, that's, that's the place of wisdom. It's also in Tibetan Buddhism to do with emptiness and form. The female is considered to be empty because it is the place that all things arise from. In other words, the female gives birth to everything. So maleness is considered to be form and femaleness is considered to be emptiness so all form arises out of emptiness and then because nothing lasts forever it dissolves back into emptiness again that's a fundamental of tibetan buddhism and also the tibetan magical traditions a very important and incredibly deep concept i mean on the surface you can say that and say yeah well that's obvious but actually there is a vast vast amount of teaching within that you can kind of meditate on that for a lifetime and i don't think you'll ever get to the bottom of it it's it's hugely important that whole dialogue between maleness and femaleness emptiness and form sky and earth well the other way around earth and sky earth being female and sky being male that sacred marriage between all of those things turquoise and coral and uh, red and white moon and sun um okay i better unpack that a bit uh like i said a little while ago turquoise is considered to be sky in native american traditions and it is in the tibetan traditions too and coral is considered to be earth uh in both native american and tibetan traditions and they are seen as female for the coral and male for the sky and you get the same thing with red and white. Uh, red, like coral, is female, and that represents the earth, and white is male. In fact, the Tibetan word for turquoise is actually the same as the Tibetan word for white. In Tibetan Tantra, you are told that the, um, those two color symbols are red is menstrual blood and white is semen. And that is the uh, female and maleness. And the moon and sun in the Tibetan traditions are reversed to how they're normally seen in the West. Uh, the moon is seen as white and therefore it represents semen, so it's male. And the sun, uh, especially when it's rising or setting, is red and that represents menstrual blood and that is female. So that's different to the normal sort of pagan uh, sun being male and moon being female. Although in lots of places in Europe, those uh, those two things are reversed as well. I believe in Germany, uh, the the sun is seen as female and the uh, the moon is seen as male. So it's not a universal thing. Anyway, I digress. So within these Tibetan traditions, I started to work with not only the bell and uh, the, the doge, uh, I started to work with purubas as well. Now, a puruba is, uh, or a kila is, the, uh, is the, the Sanskrit word for it. Purba is Tibetan. Uh, the purba is a dagger. 
It is a dagger with a triangular-shaped blade, or rather, it's not actually triangular. It's like, um, mm, how can I describe the blade of a purba? A purba is a bladed dagger where there are three blades which all come together in the middle, like fins on a missile. That's not a bad way of putting it. Or fins on a spaceship. Or fin, yes, uh, um, feathers on an arrow. That's perhaps the best way of thinking of it. If you think of each feather on an arrow, at the end of an arrow, each quill is uh, like the blade of a purba. So you have three of them set at one third each of the circle. Um, and uh, so Purba has these three blades um, and it has a handle which ends in different forms some of them have a horse's head on top some of them have a grotesque figure uh, some of them have a doge um, but it's uh, it's a ritual dagger it's used for destruction it's used for the destruction of demonic spirits and for our own demons the the demons within us like our jealousy or our anger or our negativity about a certain subject so purbas are ancient and and rather remarkable ritual objects with a whole lore and a whole kind of tradition one of the podcasts that I've got coming up that I'd like to talk about is the whole thing about initiations. So I'll just, I shall say more about purbas and initiations in those because technically you're supposed to have the initiations in order to learn how to work with them because they're considered to be closed teachings and uh, powerful and potentially dangerous. So I want to talk about closed teachings and open teachings and initiations and cultural appropriation too, which I think is an important topic. That will come up in another podcast in this series. So I started to work with the Purba. In fact, I started to work with the Purba when I was about 15 because the the spirits, when I was about 15, they started coming and talking to me. And I had, as I said before, I seem to remember, um, and I had cloth ears. I just didn't understand what it was that they were saying. But some of what they were saying kind of came through. And I started to work with a knife, which I just kind of knew how to do it was uh it was just like uh, i must do this it was an, a compulsion a a ceremony that i had to perform without really thinking about it or fully understanding it and that actually turned out to be a purba ceremony in effect i learned that it was a purba ceremony well it only dawned on me really that it was a purba ceremony a few years ago because i was doing in effect the same ceremony now but from a tibetan tradition that I had been given by the spirits best part of 45 years earlier. So I think Purbas have been around for me for a very, very long time. I don't know what that's about, whether it's universal stuff, whether it's some sort of past life stuff that I don't remember and I don't make any claims whatsoever for past life memories. Uh, well, not about Tibet. I actually do have past life memories, but they're about medieval France. And that's a whole other podcast, which I'm not going to go into. But um, certainly I don't claim any Tibetan things or Native American things or shamanic things. I was not a shaman in a formal life. I do not remember my tribe, etc., etc., etc. I really don't. No memories at all. But I did have this clear compulsion at the age of 15 to start working with this knife in the same way that one would work with a purba. Of course, at 15, I'd never heard of a purba. I'd never seen a picture of a purba. I had no idea. I wouldn't have known what a purba was if you'd shoved one at my nose.
Now, there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of ritual objects from all sorts of different traditions. I could go on about catvangas. I could talk about triangular-shaped iron dungeons, which are used to trap spirits, and I probably win in a later podcast. I could talk about the staffs that are used by shamans to go into trance with that have horses heads carved on the top and the other sort that have dragons heads carved on the top i could talk about manjig manjig are bundles of snakes made of cloth that are used by mongolian shamans i could talk about mirrors and i will do a little bit but All of these things are traditional and all of these things are very ancient and all of these things have their own spirits. So I want to talk a little bit about the spirits of objects. Now, because everything is alive, everything we are part of is an animistic universe. So everything from a tree to a mountain to a rock to a star to a concept has a spirit. So a ritual object has a spirit. Okay, so I'm going to say pick up a bell, all right? A Tibetan bell. I haven't got one here with me in front of the microphone, so I'll just sort of go ding-ling. There you go, there's a bell. All right, now this bell is a piece of bronze or it's a piece of uh, an alloy made of different metals. Um, It's a shape. It has the sort of skirt-like bottom bit. It has the handle bit at the top that you hold. You ring it and a bit of metal hits the side and it goes ring, 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 ring. There you go. I'm doing it again. It's a physical object. So it has got a spirit because it's a physical object. But there is a tradition that uses this type of bell. Okay. So the tradition has a spirit, just like the bell has. There is a master spirit. It's like there is the individual spirit and there is the master spirit of the whole collective of bells. It's exactly the same uh, with any ritual object. Okay, I'm going to talk about the sacred pipe because I'm a pipe carrier and I know a lot about the sacred pipe in that way and I'm used to it. So let me talk about that. I get my pipe out. There is a pipe In front of me, it's got a bowl of stone and a stem of wood, and each of those is alive with their own spirit. And when you put the pipe together, there is also the spirit of the pipe as a collective. And then beyond that, there is the spirit of all of the pipes that have always been there, that have ever been there, held by every Native American and every non-Native American person that does pipe ceremonies and has a pipe. And there is yet another circle of layer. There is the the spirit of the actual ceremony. And it's exactly the same with all ritual objects. So a mirror. Now, I can't say vast amounts about the mirror because they're closed teachings, but I can say a little bit. A mirror is a bronze disc that is used in Siberian, Mongolian and Tibetan and Chinese and some other cultures too. Uh, shamanic traditions and sacred traditions. They're made of bronze. They've been used for at least the four, last 4,000 years. They have their origin in ancient China. Um, and there's a whole load of traditions about them, and each one is a powerful spirit. And there is also the collective spirit of mirrors. And there is also the collective spirit of 
the ceremonies around and involving mirrors, the tradition, the spirit of a tradition. So when you are working with an ancient tradition or an ancient object, it's not just the bit of metal or the bit of wood or whatever it is that's in front of you or in your hand. You are working with a kind of multidimensional, pan-dimensional being here that stretches across eons, that goes into all sorts of different dimensions of the spirit world, that also is kind of manifesting in all sorts of places on this physical world and has done for potentially thousands of years. It is incredibly complicated and that is what makes a ritual object so special, so incredibly powerful. You are tapping in to this great collective consciousness of objectness and of ceremoniness whenever you are working in this way. It's vast. It's awesome. It's the best thing since potato crisps. It's incredible. And some ritual objects not only have um, their own kind of spirit that is part of their objectness, like the mirror has its spirit of mirrors, some objects are used to actually store spirits. Um, I spoke in another podcast about the word on God, and on God is a Mongolian word for a spirit, but it is also the name for a doll or another sort of object that the spirit lives within. And, um, and so a spirit can actually dwell within an object, a bit like an idol. Okay, you know, or a fetish. You you may have seen these little animal fetishes, which the Zuni people from Southwest USA have. They they are well known for their Zuni fetishes. They're wonderful little stone carvings of different animals. There's the the spirit of the rock, and there's the actual spirit of the animal that lives within that rock, within that fetish. And so it becomes an idol, it becomes a home, it becomes a place of dwelling for the spirit. And lots and lots of shamanic objects are like that. They have spirits that live within them. So in Siberian and Mongolian traditions, you get these wonderful ongods, which are dolls, which are very often in human or human-ish form, but sometimes are not. Sometimes they're just like squares of fabric. And they are houses which spirits are deliberately brought into. And then uh, they are um, brought out at different times for different ceremonies. Offerings are given to them, etc., etc. And they are absolutely idols. There's a bit in the Bible that goes on about you shouldn't worship idols. Bollocks to that. You should worship idols. Idols are great things. They are wonderful. Everybody should have lots of idols in their houses and they should be worshipped and they should be blessed and offerings should be made for them. And hopefully the Spanish Inquisition won't come and get me for saying that. And yeah, boo to them if they try. I should just set my spirits on them. Yes, I will. Look, I've gone on quite a lot. I think it's probably time to kind of finish this particular one. I wanted to say a lot more about objects and I haven't really talked about using a lot of them. Um, so I think this will just be an introduction and I'm going to have to go on and talk about objects in a in a later one. Maybe the next pod will be about objects or maybe it won't. I'll keep you guessing. So I'm going to kind of end here, I think, because uh, I'm trying to keep these two around the 30 minutes. Uh, that seems long enough. So I will kind of finish here and then I'll do another one going into more depth. So 
thank you very, very much for listening. And I hope that I have not lost you. And I hope I haven't gabbled too much and been incoherent. And I hope it's been at least semi-enjoyable. I shall do my normal little patter about uh, websites and things. First of all, I love getting your emails. I'm really bad at replying, but then sometimes I can get 200 emails a day and that can be a little bit difficult to reply to everything. So, but please send them. And if I can reply, I will. And my email address is nick at sacredhoop.org. I'm the editor of Sacred Hoop magazine. It's been going since 1993. It's considered by many people to be the best magazine about shamanism in the world. Um, and that's not me saying that, that's them. I'm just repeating hearsay. And um, you can get a two-year subscription for £14, which is around about $17, depending on the exchange rate, if you go to sacredhoop.org forward slash offer dot html. I have a website which is to do with this podcast and also and mostly uh, it's a gallery of ritual objects. So if you want to go and see what a purple looks like or you want to go and have a look at a Tibetan bell or a gao or any of the things that I've really talked about, not so much bundles because I don't have any Native American things on it, but I have lots and lots of Mongolian objects. That is at www.threeworlds.co.uk. So I'm going to end now and uh, yeah, see you next time. Bye, see, bye.